1: And welcome to It's Your Voice, the show that hosts enriching conversations in diversity. My name is Bahia Yakshan. I'm a core alignment coach, an emotional wisdom training specialist, and a diversity educator. And I've had the great fortune of being able to live in different places over time. I grew up in a mixed heritage family that moved a lot. And as a result, I had... Um, Just, yeah, the great good fortune of meeting many people from many different backgrounds and a couple of times in different languages. And I just find it all so educational and heartwarming and heart and mind expanding that I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to continue meeting people from all kinds of backgrounds, experiences and lives and uh, if you're interested in programs, I think if you've been following me, you know that I lead trainings and how to undo bias and create new pathways and new thinking patterns that lead to new actions that are very um, far more inclusive and comforting to all of us once we, you know, learn how to do it. And I also coach people. So I, you can go to my website, which is knowwhatyouwantcoaching.wordpress.com if you're interested in seeing my programs. And I am so excited to have a guest today who, whose training I was able to attend, which I love, you know, trying to see what other people are doing, how other people approach it. And I learned so much from Jessica, Jessica Vasquez torres And she is, uh, well, let me tell you what she would and to be a first. It's an interesting progression. Um, she wanted to be a cop and then she wanted to be a lawyer and become a DA, and then shifted, and has a, uh, maybe if I forgot anything, she'll tell you, um, has a master's in divinity, and also um, a master's of theological studies. And um, is a very warm person with so much clarity. I just really uh, appreciate you. And Jessica, thank you so much for being here today for this conversation.
2: Thank you, thank you Bahia. For having me, looking forward to our chat.
1: <laughs> me too. So, I'm curious about that shift. What What was it? <laughs> I, I see a theme like justice, right? So,
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely right. A Police officer um,
1: to help make things right, and we an attorney, yes. and I'm going to be a DA, and then, wow. So, so tell us.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I uh, so growing up, my grandfather was a cop. My dad was a cop for a part of his life. And my uncle was a cop, he was an FBI agent and retired from the Bureau. And um, and I think that I, I certainly wanted to live in a world and I wanted to engage in work that made a difference, right? I think that that was at the core. And certainly some commitment to justice was at the core. And when I went to college, I grew up in an immigrant family. And, and I think that... Um, how my parents wanted me to live my life and how I wanted to live my life were certainly at odds with each other when I was like, you know, 17 years old and entering college. And um, and I think that my parents were deeply concerned about the choice of being a cop. I think they were concerned for my life and my safety. Yeah. Um, and, um, and when I decided that, okay, I won't be a cop, but I'm going to still study criminal justice, which is what my undergraduate degree is on, and um and then I'm like gonna go to law school, right? And become a lawyer, because that that isolates you from I think the danger they perceive. Uh but my mom, who is a, a Christian woman who uh was a very faithful Christian woman, uh really was concerned about the condition of my soul. And she was like, Well, what about the hard choices you're gonna have to make and all of these things that she had probably thought of or considered or her own biases about lawyers? And she really was pretty committed to not me being an attorney it's like a weird immigrant story where your parent doesn't want you to be an attorney hmm. um, and my and i was a part of a congregation at the time it was a, i am i practiced uh, christianity as a religion and i was a member of a congregation that really was very invested in my ex- considering ministry as a actual vocational path and I went to a, a, I did an internship at a church, and um, something certainly was awakened. I don't know that I knew exactly what that was at the time, but when I graduated, instead of applying to law school, I applied to seminary, thinking that it would do two things, right? It would quiet the people that were really pushing me. Um, it would quiet my parents' concerns. I would be the dutiful, older child. Um, and uh, and I didn't have to be a minister, right? Like there was no, nothing that said that going to seminary would make me a minister. And uh, yet I went and something was definitely awakened. And I did, in fact, become a minister and um, have been that for a really long time at this point. I have never exercised my vocational role as a minister in a traditional congregational setting. I have been much more of a, a nonprofit uh, sort of work that's been where I have lived out that particular vocation part of my life, uh, but yeah, the the commitment was always about how do we make the world different, uh, and uh, and the life has a way of guiding you into unexpected places. So that's how my journey from potential police officer to to minister, and and in some ways much more of a scholar of religion
1: these days. Wow, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And and you, and you said the um. I'm just looking at my note because you told me your, uh, the focus um, of your theological studies was Christian ethics.
2: Yeah, so I have two degrees and you got them right. So I have a master's of divinity degree, which is if you're going to be a minister in a, in a kind of large uh, U.S.-based denomination, think Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, that, that kind of stuff, you go mm-hmm. to seminary and the degree that you get is called a master of divinity. Uh, which is your basic run-of-the-mill be a pastor degree. And then I did that and worked out of in that identity for about 10 years. And then I went back to school um, because I was thinking about now religion and Christianity in a much more academic way um, and really have been at work doing issues of and dealing with issues of racism and diversity and issues of inclusion. And so I went back to school to get an academic degree. And the focus of my work during my master's uh, theological studies was really about understanding the moral impact of racism and white dominance on both people of color and white people. Something that, right, there's this term uh, that we have in um, in Christian ethics and social ethics um, called moral injury. And it's often used to refer to the impact of war on soldiers. And I really wanted to think about uh, what is what if what if we could in, imagine uh, something like white dominance or racism creating a moral wound on people? Then what what would be the impact of that moral injury? What would be the impact to behavior, to ways of thinking, to our imagination, to the ways that we relate to each other, uh, either across racial lines, white people to people of color, or between people of color groups and across people of color groups? So that's why I spent. Uh, and a half years of my life thinking about writing
1: about moral injury wow that that's so um i don't know it it really strikes me how much that is about all of us Mm -hmm. there's there's no way to live in a whether it's an oppressive society around one issue i mean they're always overlapping and interconnecting Mm -hmm. but whether it's sexism or homophobia or ageism or ability oppression or racism, it definitely fires back at those of us who are trained to be you know, inadvertently, perhaps mm-hmm. unconsciously, I'll just say agents of oppression. Mm-hmm. When I step on someone's foot or don't acknowledge, mm-hmm. um, you bet it comes back at me, even if it's never identified at the moment, or yeah. just like internally. So I, I really appreciate that term.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I think you've named there, Bahia, yeah, that it's important to, to that I really think it's important to underscore is, you know, that we sometimes we in the U.S. get really caught up in, in questions of intention. I intended or I didn't intend. And one of the things I really wanted to to push myself to think about in, in that part of my life and in the work that I have been doing up to that point and in those, you know, two and a half years of thinking and studying um, was really was really the question of what happens when we don't intend. Like, mm-hmm. is there a way that that this sort of idea of a moral injury, in fact, operates in spite of our intentions, operates uh, despite our good intent, uh, despite our commitments to live in a society where people are treated equally, where people are, um, are seen as, you know, you often hear in our field of where people say, Ah, quoting Dr. King, where people are seen by the content of their character, if you will, mm-hmm. and and so you know, I I don't my my kind of work that I do at, at this organization. I work for a small organization called Crossroads Center Racism Organizing and Training, and our work is it's not a work seeking to engage people that are committed to like oppression or committed to bias. We work mostly with people deeply invested in building. A society where people can uh, be free and people can express themselves and people can be fully human and um, and yet we also know that in spite of those commitments there is something happening that reproduces uh, forms of bias or forms of high harm impacts that we don't intend and so one of the things that it's important to or I think one of the things that I spent a lot of my time inviting people to consider is what if what if it operates, despite
1: our intentions. Mm-hmm. And then what do we do with that? Wow, yeah, thanks, yeah. Gosh, yeah, thank you for underscoring that. And uh, it's so funny that I didn't mention the organization you came from when I introduced you. Oh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> because you are the national director, incidentally. <laughs> the, the national director of the Crossroads Anti-Racism organization, or training and organization.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, yeah and so and you've been doing this for is it 30 years
2: 22 I'm, right. I'm 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 getting into that direction 22 years i know it's just every time i say it um i'm always like "Dear, wow how yes. does that happen right yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. how do we get to be this ages how do we get to be these ages but yeah 22 years in some capacity or another i mm-hmm. it hasn't always been my full-time job i have in those 22 years i've been a program director at a large national denomination, actually in the United States doing this work. I've been uh, attached to a labor uh, adjacent organization, doing labor organizing and trying to engage people Mm -hmm. in religious communities in labor work and and, um, equity around pay. Um, And in in terms of like people's work, like worker rights, I've been an admissions director of a higher education institution in the theological field. And and then for the last, Since 2013, I've been working at Crossroads in a a full-time capacity. Those 22 years have all been connected to Crossroads in some way or another in this field. But Mm -hmm. as a full-time staffer, I've been at Crossroads for since since 2013.
1: Thank you. I want to go back to your point about um, intention because people who request to learn more and ask for training, or, or or perhaps In an organization that is, you know, hopefully in communicating to their staff, that Mm -hmm. would be a great advantage to all of us, to every one of us. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's how I mean, how I mean, how often is it that someone's intending to do this who who seeks out how to learn how to not do it, (laughs) right? And and yes, the the majority of people are like good. That's one thing I like to lead with is that you know, all human beings were born loving. You, you just observe some human babies yes. and boy, are they not like reaching out curious, um, mm-hmm. it's a natural flow that you want to connect. It's healthy, natural, yep. loving. And um, sadly over time, the patterns of like stepping back and not trusting and mm-hmm. fearing uh, the other um, mm-hmm. despite best intentions to get like right, layered and layered and layered and layered and it's a result of conditioning. Yeah. And um uh, I just love that we can uh, uncover the conditioning, find ways out, but it's so challenging. And yeah. um and I, I again I really loved being in your training and I loved um you know plus it was on Zoom, right? Because we're still in the pandemic.
2: We are still in the pandemic.
1: We could not be meeting in person and um So I would like to like ask you more about like, what do you think it is that, because there is a a lot of resistance Mm -hmm. to the idea. I mean, I don't know, I'm sure it's not strictly American, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. this idea of like, what do you mean? Again, not necessarily conscious, but a a real strong um, habit of feeling the need to defend oneself <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if, if uh, it's sad that we need training or like if our boss or our organization or a church mm-hmm. or synagogue or mosque or mm-hmm. said, look, we we need to undergo training because we're not like communicating well with other people or there was another incident mm-hmm. of violence or, um, and so how, how to, this is a big question. So take it where you want, but like, what is it you think is like, I don't know, the medicine or the key or, the magic that helps people who are in a training mm-hmm. and, and and they, and move from realizing, Oh, it's, this is not about me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and just to tune in more and kind of like decrease defenses and, and start seeing that, Oh, this can really actually lead to some really some great benefits. If I, yeah. if I will just trust the process. So
2: yeah, um, take it. Okay. So I think there's a couple of things, right? That I that I would say, and maybe to to give it a a prelude, if you will. So I, you know, I think that in the in the U.S. very specifically, and you're right, right? There's I've done this workshop in other parts of the world, um, and I grew up in another part of the world, not the United States. And so even in my own country of origin, um, we have. Racial biases and, and racial issues that 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 are a part of the population, because the questions around racial bias, the questions around racism, even the, the construction of something called dominance or white dominance or, or European dominance are, are not just unique to the U.S., right? They're a part of a historical period in time. Right. It comes out of uh, the post-enlightenment era. We are people, the Europeans are moving out of Europe. They're discovering new spaces. And and they're trying to make sense of what they're of what they're encountering. And um and they're informed. This is why in many ways I continue to operate in the world of religion, they are informed by a cosmology, and by that I mean a um a construction or a narrative about the creation of the universe uh and the world that we live in, in which they are sort of standing at the top of that cosmology, right? They're at the mm-hmm. top of that sort of human pyramid. And, as they are encountering others, they're not encountering them with the curiosity that you talked about earlier that children have of like, "Ooh, that's interesting. Let me go figure that out. But they're encountering them from a sense that these people are not like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be beneath us, right? right. They may be than us. Now, so human beings, that's, so that's one thing as a prelude. Second thing as a prelude is that human beings, we do a number of things uh, from, from a kind of in- from the ways that we operate in the world. Uh, one is that we, we take in lots of information all the time. One mm-hmm. of my favorite little books, uh, The Person You Mean to Be by Dr. Dolly Chu, who also has a, a wonderful TED talk. Um, you know, in that book, she, she talks about the fact that we, we as human beings are taking millions of data all every day. We are just bombarded by information, data, coming out, coming out, coming out. And when you have that much information and data coming your way, uh, you have to you have to organize, it, right? Like, because it's, otherwise you're overwhelmed. You are in like an information overload and we can function. And so what we do is we create pathways to help us navigate the information. And those pathways are not just the pathways that I created on my own. No, it's the pathways that my family helped me create. It's the pathways that, the institutions of society help me to make school or church or like the club I belong to, the, the sports team I played in, right? I have a bunch of pathways and they help me classify information. Mm-hmm. So I create buckets and those buckets have a story. And one of the buckets that we have in the U.S. Is, is race. One bucket is gender, right? One bucket is ability. One bucket is sexuality. And we create a bucket and we place people as we encounter them in those buckets, right? And and we're not consciously thinking about this, by the way. This is happening in our subconscious level so that our capacity for organizing is quick, it's fast, it's conditioned, it's instinctual, which is why often what people say is that was not my intention or that's not what I believe. But because no, that is in fact not, that may in fact be not what you're aware of, but it is what you are doing. So that's the second thing to say. The third thing to say as a prelude to your question is that most of us walk around with an identity that we are good people. And being good in the U.S. is a really important thing, hmm. right? From the moment that we are kids, we are we are inculcated with stories about the good guys versus the bad guys, the good people versus the bad people, right? Like we're told stories about us, um, showing up as good actors in other people's realities, being pro-democracy, right? being being pro-freedom, being pro-liberty, we are good people. So when you put all of that together and now you show up in a conversation about racism, that may invite you to consider the ways in which you may be collaborating or participating in a system of which you have no control. Uh, in a society that has made choices and has conditioned you in particular ways, the invitation to that kind of exploration then is experienced as a threat. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And we experience in those moments, and I think this is where the resistance comes in, we experience something called limbic hijacking, meaning Mm. that now I am no longer operating critically You've indicated that I may be a bad person, that I may be biased, that I may be, God forbid, racist. And now I am no longer critically engaging you. I am simply emotionally reacting, so I am going to resist. Now, as a facilitator, I have to be aware of all of that mm-hmm. happening at any time in a workshop and in a room, in a conversation over Zoom. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of things that I think have to, I have to remember. One, and you said it earlier, that people are inherently good. And I do believe that. I do believe that as a person of faith, I believe that um, as a matter of value. Two, that if somebody is in this conversation, whether they are there because they're mandated or not, they, they probably have a part of them that still wants to participate in conversation. We are, we are relational communal animals, human mm-hmm. beings. And so this desire to still be in that sort of community, to be a participant and be seen as one that is in. I think third, the other thing that I have to remember is that people actually do tend to have deeply held values. And Mm. then my job is not to dismiss those values, but my job is to try and hear all the way through what might be creating the resistance.
1: Mm. Is the
2: resistance a sense of threat that I'm a bad person? Is the resistance... Because we have a different analysis of what's going on. Maybe you believe it's about class, and I'm telling you it's about race. And you're sitting there, a working class person who struggles every day, who's getting work, who feels that this technologically advanced world is leaving people like you behind, right? Maybe you watch people in your life who've lost everything or who can't find jobs or who've gotten displaced. Maybe you're struggling trying to keep your house. Maybe you've lost your house. Maybe your kids have gotten bullied because they don't have the thing. So for you, it's really about class. So I have to listen all the way through, mm-hmm. and not just say no, you're wrong. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna take apart that resistance, and I have to take that as a valid concern, and I have to say, okay, what's the bigger picture in which your concern resides? What's the bigger picture in which the concern you have and the concern I have may in fact be rooted in the same thing Mm. and it's 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 that place of trying to get people to see that we in fact have much more in common and that the threats against our 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 wholeness as a community are actually often the same threats even if we can see them that I think it's the it's the hard work of doing this work it's also where the benefit comes in if we could figure out And become aligned on the fact that the real issue isn't, that the real issue of class and racism are rooted in the same place. So that if we could align ourselves, we would more effectively get the things we need to live with dignity. Uh, If we could figure that out, that, that would be the sweet spot.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: So, so that is my very long answer to your super broad question about, <laughs> about, about this subject.
1: Well, great. It, we needed it. We needed a long answer. So, so what did
2: that? So let me ask you: What did that your facilitator you do this? So what did that evoke in you? Like you heard me, but what what's your experience of doing
1: that? Um, well, always remembering, and if I forget, remembering that we're all human beings, and <laughs> and and I too believe everyone is good and wants to be good, not not just is, but actually has a desire to. Mm-hmm. And um, no matter how buried it might feel or seem, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, what I love what, what was when you said um, listening all the way through, because I think that's the key, that's so key for so many human beings, um, regardless of class, race, gender, and all the different ways we've been divided, is feeling being heard and listened yeah. to, and that that itself is so healing. Mm-hmm. As facilitator. Um, stops and notices what i'm saying and demonstrates that they've heard my point um to me that that that's a huge turning point and that makes that makes all the difference
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um and i'm just thinking about um i so appreciate that you bring up class and i um think about some people from the um Whatever you call the highest class, I don't know. There's different uh-huh. names. upper class. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, one percent, whatever. Uh, yeah, whatever um,
2: percent is sitting on top. Certainly, you know, yeah. the one or the two or the three or the five or the ten percent, whatever that. However, we want to think of that, right?
1: Yeah, and it it was a big learning for me with my st- the stereotypes and my conditioning mm-hmm. um, that I had internalized that people. It wasn't until I met owning class people and listen to owning class people who were brave enough also to come into trainings that were like mixed of um, that. I learned how again, general patterns and then not trying to re not trying to create a stereotype, but um, there's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of isolation Mm -hmm. and loneliness when you have, when you are surrounded by material things um, and how, what a relief it is when um, for any human being to be able to connect, like feel Mm -hmm. heard be seen um, and be able to connect and reach across the divisions. Like Mm -hmm. I just like uh, uh, one of my greatest mentors, teachers, um, Mary Bassett um, from, from Maine (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. years ago, um, somebody was talking about, um, I don't know, an STD or something and called it a social disease. And she said, "Mm, it's not killing us, not killing people. Like, racism that's the social disease from which mm-hmm. we call our suffering whether we know it or not and i just feel like um so what also resonated from your answer was just the um how important it is to to listen and i love the way you said it. i think you said all the way through
2: all the way
1: through <laughs> people feel it they feel you're there they feel you're mm-hmm. they feel connection and then it's like wow i that is good. That's good food. That's Mm -hmm. nourishment. And then they can feel it more and, you know, feel it more with other people. Yeah. And I have to
2: say, being listened all the way through doesn't mean that we agree at the end. Because I think that's the other misconception. It's like you're not, like you, sometimes you watch videos of things that are happening, arguments, and one person is saying, you're not listening to me. And and what I think I want to always tell people is to to, to give someone with truly listening to them does not mean that you have to agree with them at the end right like Mm -hmm. i can listen all the way through Mm -hmm. i can be curious i can ask you questions of clarification and at the end of that exercise i will know more deeply what your concerns are and i may still disagree with you a hundred percent across our concerns but i have i have acknowledged that the thing that you have concern about is worth listening to that it has value we might disagree on how to solve it we might disagree on the priority of the concerns and that is okay and i think sometimes we think that if we listen to people somehow we have to agree so what we do is we interrupt and we don't we don't we don't allow people we're just formulating arguments as they are talking waiting for silence to interject and that's not, that's not listening. That's just, that's just arguing. We confuse the two in the US. That's
1: true. And I think that also helps, your point also helps us realize, I think like when we're raised to be nice, Mm -hmm. um, I think happens again in general to Mm -hmm. females um, being raised to be girls and women, this concept of will you, you know, be differ, be nice, be, mm-hmm. be subservient, be quiet. I think we kind of learned that a goal is, um, agreement mm-hmm. to, to agree, uh, or at least appear that you agree. And then I think that what you're saying is that when we learn like, wow, I, someone just really listened to me and they don't agree with me. But guess what? They didn't alienate me. They didn't hate me. They didn't Mm capture for me. They didn't reject. Like we learned to not, we don't have to have agreement to be connected Mm -hmm. and to feel. Mm -hmm. That is huge. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. One of the things I would say about here that I think just to, if I may, uh, I think you talked about the importance of thinking about class. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I certainly named class. And one of the reasons why I think that matters, if you are going to be doing this work,
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and this is to me one of the gifts of doing anti racism work, uh, at least the kind of anti racism work that we do in my organization, um, is that our commitment is to help us all be free, right? Like, I, you know, my commitment is that every person, white or a person of color, will, like, will live in a world, including our earth, will live in a world that experiences wholeness, right? In the fullness of their identity. That, that's our goal. And that means that I have to have a commitment, not just to end racism, if I'm gonna be doing this anti-racism work, but I have to have a commitment to end all of the other forms of oppression that diminish people. So I have to be equally committed to end classism, equally committed to end sexism and, and, you know, to end ableism, to end, like, you know, name the list of ways that we've learned to -hmm. marginalize each other. But But in the U.S. in particular, being able to see the link between race and class is so important because we tend to think if we just if we just fix the class issue, racism will go away. If we fix the poverty issue, racism will go away. And I, and I want to suggest that the issues are deeper than just whether we can lift people out of poverty um, or whether we can create a bigger safety net from a kind of governmental perspective so that people don't, you know, can live with the wages that they have. Um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know if I said that. Um, But this morning I was reading an article in our newspaper about our crisis of affordable housing, which I believe you all do have as well in, in California. And our crisis of affordable housing is the perfect intersection between class and race. Right, so in Tennessee, you can make twelve dollars an hour. Like we have a, a restaurant here called Chick Fil A, and they did a little study of a manager in that restaurant make twelve, twelve makes twelve dollars an hour. So if they work forty hours a week, mm-hmm. if you take taxes out, that's about two thousand dollars a month. The average, and if they have a family, they say that they have children and they are single parents. The average cost of a two-bedroom apartment in the particular municipality that they were studying, place called Franklin, Tennessee, it's $2,000. So you're working 40 hours a week as a manager of a fast food chain and you will only make enough money to pay for your rent. Mm -hmm. Disproportionately, the people of color that they're talking about in my state are women of color, right? And so certainly the intersection between class and race becomes clear, right? It isn't just it's a class issue, it's a class issue impacting disproportionately people of color, which makes it a race issue. And so that's that link, how do we how do we learn to see that link, I think is key. Also is. and liberating, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. And also you mentioned gender. That was mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's the gender issue, it's a class issue and it's a race issue. All wrapped in one single issue. Should we have a living wage or not? Should we index our, our wages to inflation so that people can continue to get the wages they need in order to keep up with the cost of housing? Um, so, so certainly, a single issue of like living wages is actually a racial issue, a gender issue, and a class issue, which means we could actually build coalitions um, in ways that allow us to all get what we need, which is in the case of this little case study, Housing that is safe for our family and ourselves. That's where the intersections matter.
1: Yes, and it's it's just so true how um, like the the truth of like like how liberating that will be for all of us if 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 single parents if everyone can afford housing and does not Mm -hmm. have to live with the stress of can i make my payment how am i going to feed the kids how am i it's just like imagine how much better the world is for everyone
2: mm-hmm.
1: and how we can get close. i mean it's it's exciting to reach a stage where there's opportunity and time and energy to actualize your your you know something beyond survival like your vision yeah. for things or the book you want to write or painting you want to make or Mm-hmm. Or, or help your children cultivate what they yep. love, so they can contribute mm-hmm. what they really want to contribute in the world. You yep. know, rather than feeling like oh, I have to do a, you know, this kind of job because I apparently I'm perceived as only being able to do that kind of job. Exactly. But the truth is, I want to do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I guess so. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I love that you said that's a goal and but to, to the greatest benefit is like, what does liberation mean? Um, mm-hmm. And that our liberation is tied together and connected. And I, I that phrase keeps coming to my mind. None of us are free until all of us are free.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the truth of that, it just feels more and more and more real.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What, what did, what would you say? Um, I mean, we were, you, we've already sort of described some of the, the challenges. I don't know how you just again take this where you want, but like what the like when one thing we used to ask people was, you know, what are all the forms of oppression have in common? And that yeah. was one way they could get a link of how why it's so important to connect work mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. addressing all of the all mm-hmm. of them. And and inevitably the groups of people would get to a place where they would recognize Oh well, threat—you know, threats or threat of violence or actual violence—and the mm-hmm. and you over people was what keeps some of these or what keeps all of these patterns in place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I love that you're you you add so much more um, to mm-hmm. the language and the ba- the way to conceptualize it. Um, what are other ways people can? You know, you talked about the, the root, like what's the root cause, what's the link, what yeah, are other yeah. are things you point to or other ways people can find the the link, the connection, the root
2: yeah. common. Yeah, so this is this is where I will use one of those words that tends to set people off. So if you're watching or you're listening, don't don't tune me out yet. <laughs> um, so so you know, in my work, we would say that the root is something we would call hegemony. Uh, which is another way of talking about domination or domain or the way that power operates at a number of levels or domains, which is the language of a sociologist named Patricia Hill Collins. And so we would say that what, what another way of thinking about that hegemony in the common language of the United States today is to talk about something called white supremacy. Now, Our initial response, often when we hear the word white supremacy, is to think about things like nationalist groups or separatist groups or uh, what is sometimes is termed that sort of white right-wing groups, like militarized kinds of uh, organizations. Or we tend to think about like long historical organizations like the KKK or the Aryan Nation, right? So our, our mind immediately formulates a picture and we are not in it right like like whoever is like yeah that's not me that's not what i believe right i love everyone and so i i want to affirm your love of everyone and i want to say that most of us when we hear that word only are thinking about the fringe of what white supremacy is or if we want to use an iceberg metaphor we're only thinking about the top of the iceberg the most visible part of the iceberg. And what we're ignoring is what is lying beneath the surface of white supremacy, the stuff that is much more corrosive, much more damaging, and much more commonplace place and widespread. And so we would say that the roots that binds so many of our oppressions, it's the kind of white supremacy that lies beneath the level of the water that we can see. And here is what we're talking about, things like uh, a belief that there is only one way of being a human being, that, that, that there is a sense in which, in the US, we use the term American, for example, and so that there is only one kind of American, and everyone else that isn't a white American is a hyphenated American, right? Because mm. we don't talk about white Americans, we talk about Americans, and then we talk about Asian Americans and African Americans, right? The peoples of the hyphen. Mm. Um, and so that doesn't mean that you automatically dislike those people. It just means that you operate out of a framework that says there are some right ways of being. There are some ways of being that are normal, standard, and good. There's hmm. some way, And so that normalization, that sense of good, standard, normal, desirable, moral, the construction of all those things when aligned with a particular group, hmm. cisgendered, able-bodied, white, male, middle to upper class, owning class, as the norm we all are aspiring to, we will call that a kind of hegemonic idea. Mm. And everyone else that stands outside of that or challenges that, then sort of becomes a threat. Now, how that functions or how that stays in place is that it convinces some of us to align with it. And so that's why the questions of poverty in the U.S. then become so racialized. With poor white people being pitted often against poor people of color, or being put in a class struggle over what are the meager resources, as opposed to aligning to talk about total reorganization of the resources of the society. Or cisgender people, people who align with their, you know, their the gender assigned at birth, get get put against and in battles with LGBTQIA and trans folks over rights and over the, the right to, to, to participate in society in the fullness of their expression. And so the techniques of divide and conquer that keep us from seeing what lies underneath, which is harming us all because it's not letting us, any of us, be our full selves. It's what we would create, what would cost, would say is the cost and the things that we all have in common at the same time. Mm-hmm. So how do we rattle against that? How do we pay attention to what lies beneath? Mm. Uh, it's actually one of the skills that we all need to develop. So it isn't about being called a word or being put in a camp. It's about understanding the arrangement in which we are living, which is ultimately costing us all. Mm. Because it means that 1% of the population ends up with enormous resources, whereas the rest of the population, a significant portion of the population, ends up either struggling or constantly grasping for the promise that they can be like the 1%, but the 1% doesn't actually, isn't actually invested in, right? Jeff Bezos as a 1%er could have taken all the money from SpaceX and instead used it to end and eliminate all medical debt and all student debt in the US, still have money and actually created a different kind of equity and opportunity. Instead, he went to space, right? And so. The 1% is seldom interested in solving the issues. It ends up using the battles between groups of people as a way of keeping us all from recognizing that there is something structurally we have to alter in our nation. So how do we learn to see beneath the, the surface of the water?
1: Mm. Wow, I, I thank you so much. That was an excellent illustration. and And the term hyphenated people, I don't think I'll ever forget that. Mm -hmm. like there are Americans and then there are that kind of American or that kind of American or that kind of American that aren't like Mm
2: -hmm. yeah Yeah, as a citizen that is often interrogated and presumed not to be a citizen um, I'm mindful that I don't fit the standard of what an American is supposed to look like which is why when I travel I always travel with my passport um, because I want to be able to prove that I am in fact have a right to be here
1: Mm. yeah that's painful
2: yeah and yet and let me say one more thing and i also know that there are so many people who are born in the u.s who are of the U.S. who can't even afford to get a passport right who are struggling financially so I, i'm mindful that even within that structure i am not without privilege i mean we started by talking about my degrees right mm-hmm. we started talking about Uh, my education. And it's not because I grew up in a place that had any of that. It's just that I, 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 you know, my parents were pretty committed and they did deep sacrifices. And I chose to take on an enormous amount of debt to pursue something. But that also opens doors. I speak English. I'm able-bodied. So I'm not, I'm not saying I am a completely oppressed person and outside of some kind of structure, uh, living in some kind of, you know, destitute life, I have lots of advantages that other people don't have, white or people of color. And I'm still carrying a passport because I don't think often people believe me that I belong. And those two things can be real at the same time.
1: I think that really, that adds to the confusion, doesn't it? It's interesting. I mean, like I I do like to believe despite setbacks and backlashes and um, being in the midst of like pretty horrific a manipulated division um in this country from elected people mm-hmm. a, a lot of them um i still i still believe and notice and remember so much progress has been made and just the, what you just shared is just such a, a a good way to to demonstrate some of that is like there um and there's been a lot of mobility a lot more mobility than like when my father came to this country exactly um I'm not sure, I think maybe in the 40s, and and with a very thick, heavy accent, was uh, fairly light-skinned, but if people people were suspicious of just looking at him, the second he opened his mouth and spoke, boy, things changed. (laughs) He didn't sound American, even though he became American, Mm -hmm. Um, and true that there's still, we just can't. That's the problem with categorizing people and, and wanting to keep people in buckets so the buckets. Thank goodness. are, are I, I, I like to believe are falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I mean, while people can choose to be with who they want to choose to be and you know, whether you call it affinity group or, you know, having pride in whoever your people are um, the, the external divisions and categorizations um, I like to believe. I mean, sometimes they're strongly reinforced, but then, over time, more people talking, more people communicating, more people in conversations. I like to believe they're dissolving. And then, you know, my, you know, it's not. Um, you're either oppressed or not oppressed. Mm-hmm. But I see we just have a couple of minutes left. Do you? What would be? Um, how would you like to wrap up um, your your closing statement for this? Yeah. conversation?
2: No, I, well, so first, a word of gratitude to you for the invitation to just be in conversation. And I think second, I, I, for the listening audience I, or the viewing audience, I think I, I just want to continue to encourage us um, to to lean into this world with a kind of curiosity that invites us not to simply presume that we have it all figured out, but the kind of curiosity that invites us to interrogate, right, to, to not take things for granted, uh, but to ask hard questions and to and to stand up uh, for the answers and to wait to receive the answers, to consider the answers, and to then turn around and ask more hard questions. Um, we are lacking a, a fair bit of curiosity, not just about each other, but I think a fair bit of curiosity about the decisions that we are making collectively that ultimately harm us all. So how do we how do we lean out? Uh, how do we how do we uh, lean out in reaching out to others and lean in to listen um, and sit for the conversation, even if it makes us uncomfortable? Mm. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much. It's been it's been incredible. I look forward to talking to you more. And I also want to thank our sound engineer Roxy, who is, is makes this all work, and our producer Dean Piper, who's in, in, in incredibly industrious. And to all, and Jessica, thank you so much again for being here, and to all the listeners, really appreciate your devoting time to listening to these conversations, and diversity. Uh, and be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time uh, to listen or watch live on www.w4cy.com.